Hello and welcome to episode number 341 of the Armin Show podcast, science, creativity, people, learning more, figuring things out, connecting concepts, which is something I'm always into. Subscribe if you haven't, video, audio, YouTube, Spotify, wherever it might be, anywhere. On this one here, we have the author of this book, I'm Getting Better at Showcasing Books, Sentient by Jackie Higgins, which is my guest today, which is how animals illuminate the wonder of our human senses. Author Jackie Higgins joins us today. Jackie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Armin. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad to have you on. This is a wonderful thing. The first thing I noticed about your book is superstar Richard Dawkins on the front, who is one of the people that I think is super cool. And I've always seen him as like, I think when I got into the whole category of science, I read The Selfish Gene, and then I thought, this is wonderful. And then after that, everything branched out from then. So it's one of those books you read that changes your view of the world. At least that's how it worked with me. Same with me. Shared among different, by the way, I'm in Los Angeles. Jackie is coming from London. We are of distant locations. And Richard Dawkins, I'm guessing, would be around where you are. He's not far. He's in Oxford, which is just an hour and a half down the road. In fact, I was there. Um, I was in Oxford um, um, speaking to him. We were both on a podium um, with one another about six weeks ago. Um, so I got the opportunity to thank him for his lovely endorsement of the book because um, we were talking about his new book, which is also wonderful, called Flights of Fancy. In Capital F. Under small O, big F, F O N. <laughs> so it's about flight in all its guises, um, in legends and myths and poetry, but also in science. How did he, to get into that, how did he inspire you in some form, or do you see any qualities of his that you've resonated with for a long time? What impact has he had on your being? Well, he was my tutor at university. So um, I studied zoology a few decades ago um, at Oxford. And I was lucky enough to have him as my tutor. I mean, he he took three students each year that um, that he would personally teach um, evolution, animal behavior. And I was lucky enough to be one of those students. Um, and that book, The Selfish Gene that you mentioned, was for me a complete catalyst. Um, and it changed my view of the world. And through that, I ended up studying zoology. Um, and actually, with this particular book, um, there was something that he wrote in another of his books called Unweaving the Rainbow, um, which was a jump off point to sentient. Um, so there are very many reasons why he's inspired me. I mean, he's um, he is he's just a heavyweight intellectual and he he um, for him, science or listening to him, science becomes philosophy. I mean, he's really grappling with the big questions. And for me, um, science is very much about that. It is, it's, for me, it's philosophical. It's about um, investigating and exploring those big questions. Who are we? What does it mean to be human? Um, what is perception? So yes, so I'm, he's, a, he's a real inspiration. That's cool. I was speaking with somebody actually who's a, let's say a fiction author. And I was talking with her about she, how she is a continuation of past authors, uh, Beckett and Joyce, and th that category of writers, Yeats. And then I think of myself as a continuation of certain philosophers of the past, maybe like Aurelius or Wittgenstein or certain others. Do you think of 
uh, that concept applying to people as like a continuation? And is Richard Dawkins, do you see him as like a continuation of evolutionary biologists like Charles Darwin is linked to now? Oh, he is absolutely. He's part of, um, he is certainly a continuation of um, what started with Darwin. Um, he and a, and, a, and a panoply of other really important evolutionary biologists, some of, who, some of whom are perhaps less well-known, um, but he is, he's, he's certainly a continuum and he's, uh, um, the way he talks about evolution, it's new synthesis, is, is he's, uh, scientists nowadays have taken on Charles Darwin's theory in leaps and bounds. I bet Darwin would be fascinated to hear what's being taught nowadays to students um, about his theory. That's one motivating factor in life. If you see that, and you would think he'd probably want to see that, when you are here and exist, you want to take the moment as it is and reach towards the next demographic because you can do it while you're still here versus somebody yes. from the past that can't do that. They wouldn't be able to see what's happening afterwards. Yes. I've also fantasized a little bit about what Aristotle might make of the book. <laughs> Aristotle over here. I mean, the I hubris. The hubris. <laughs> but... um. But as, as the book, um, you know, the book, uh, I feel rather bad, actually, because I talk about it's this myth that's been set up by Aristotle that we have five, uh, five senses, which um, he, does, he did talk about the five senses. I mean, he'll be forgiven for talking about those five senses because they are the obvious ways in which we apprehend the world um, through sight and hearing and touch and smell and taste. Um, but I fantasize that I, not about my book, but I think he'd be fascinated to read to to again to know where science has come to with regards to perception, to realize that the senses he recognized have splintered into many senses, um, depending on how one defines a sense. But say vision, for example, in my book, I discuss it both as color vision, which is served by cones which are the senses in our retinas that enable us to uh, discern color. And then I talk about dark vision, which is this um, sense that relies on the rods in our retina that enable us to see light at low levels. So, you know, the senses that we know are splintering, but then he, he would have been, I'm sure, delighted to learn of the senses that were working beneath his kind of conscious awareness. It's still incredibly important. And they're senses that are so familiar to the way that we are that you possibly only ever um, know that they're there if you lose them or appreciate them if you lose them. So the book also talk, talks of that. Anyway, Aristotle, Darwin, we're thinking of all the big hitters here. <laughs> I actually have them on the phone right here. Let me just tell them. Yeah, Aristotle. <laughs> there's more than five. There are more than five. Just letting you know. Terribly sorry. <laughs> okay. I had to just give him the message because he thought there was just five and that's the limitation of sorts. <laughs> Now, actually going into that, well, before the book, though, um, the category you're in, zoology, and in the past, some photography, how have these things linked to the current moment? How would you describe your path to, to, now. to this book? Yeah. Ooh, tricky question. Um, so after, after graduating in zoology, I then made documentaries. Um, I would say, and, and photography and my interest in, in photographic art has always been about how a picture can tell a story. But then when I was making documentaries, wildlife films and, and, um, and science documentaries, you know, I made films for the BBC and for National Geographic and PBS Nova. Um, I think storytelling is really important. Actually, when I was writing the book, 
this amalgamation. I, I think each chapter, which each chapter focuses on an animal and what that animal can reveal about our senses. And I think that the way that I constructed each chapter would be very much how I would construct a Horizon documentary, for example. You know, the chapter starts with a scene in a sense that somehow tempts the reader into the story. And then the reader gets to know the animal, but also the scientists who are working to understand that animal and the scientist discovery stories who are working to understand us and the parallels we can draw between animals and people. So, so in, a, in a way, I think each chapter almost reads as a separate documentary and it's part of a series. Um, that's how I construct stories. Um, um, in fact, when we were on um, Horizon at the BBC, our editor um, sent us on a course by Robert McKee. Now, Robert McKee is the, um, the chap who wrote the book Story, and he, he was a script doc doctor um, over in your neck of the woods in, in kind of Hollywood. And um, scripts would land on his desk, and he basically tried to figure out what script would work in terms of telling a story. So as, as filmmakers and, and science storytellers, we were sent on this course. And this is in no way to diminish or sensationalize the science, not at all. It's trying to draw out what it was about the science that the scientist was fascinated by. Why were they studying um, the flanks of a, a catfish to understand how it tastes or um, looking at the little star on a, on, a, on a mole? Because they were drawn by curiosity and something about that animal lent itself to their story. So anyway, long-winded sense to say that yes, Filmmaking is very much part of my storytelling process, I suppose. I want to point out on this show, we don't do long-winded is not something we are, that's, we are guided towards what is being described as long-winded. That's the whole Absolutely. goal. Absolutely. We so, celebrate being long-winded. I like depth. that. I call it depth. I would call it depth. Depth. Completely. <laughs> Completely. But if somebody was like, yeah, go ahead. I, well, it, there's a, there was an off, there, often there was an accusation held at the BBC about dumbing down, don't dumb down. And I would always work on these documentaries that were really in depth, you know, Horizons were one hour. They were the long format documentaries. They were the kind of documentaries that people pretend they had watched but hadn't actually. Um, but, you know, the, the, those are, that's definitely long format storytelling is what intrigues me, really getting to the gristle and the nub of what's going on. Two points you brought up here that I like. One, that you can split it into parts, like each chapter is its own thing. I had talked to another, well, he also reads and he does his own podcast, but he talked about when he reads a book, he reads it like every chapter is its own blog post. So then he doesn't look at a book so heavy, but he looks at it, each one as one item of sort. And so then if he was reading the book, he might read chapter three as a blog post. Then he might read yes. chapter six as a, and then by the end of it, he's, and he only listens to audiobooks too. I don't know. That's his thing. Sorry, I missed who you said because there was a oh. slight Oh, uh, it's another podcaster I had on the show, uh, Chris Boutte. He has a lot of uh, interviews and he reads books. And when he reads them or listens to them, he listens to them like a blog post, each chapter, its yes. own thing. And so the heavy thing is now a bunch of smaller items in a way. That's, one that's how also how you digest information, isn't it? It's how Punking. I, yes, yes. Um, and, and for me, um, I mean, part of the enjoyment of writing this book is filtering out over and over in my mind what is the is the um, what's the importance of this piece of science because in telling a story actually you really get to grips with it better 
Um, so for me, you know, you come across a subject area and it's by diving deep and being able to tell a story that, uh, that my mum could understand. But I think that's when you really get the sense of why something's important and um, why it deserves attention is, is that filtration, that kind of um, sifting and sifting, simplifying, simplifying, never to dumb down, but to really get it at, at, at the important essence. You're linking so many concepts. It makes me think of a different episode for each one. Simpling, simplifying is Occam's razor. I talked about that for simplifying one book. The language book was talking about uh, something you just mentioned about language or the, I forgot that one. And then the attention one made me think of, that's a great point that in today's time where very few people are able to pay deep attention or put in deep work to a category, they might pretend that they've seen a documentary like one that you reminded me of as well. There was an octopus one that my friend showed me where somebody followed an octopus for two years in his life and something that's depth. And people will mention it. Like I do that. They're trying to relate with the heavy work that is involved in doing such a thing, but very few, so few do the work that if you put in that kind of work, you're automatically in a small minority. You're over here just, yes. just by virtue of doing it. And it's therefore it's important to, to um, speak to one another, to kind of, you know, regel all these ideas back together. That octopus um, um, book, actually, that, uh, sorry, film was a brilliant film. My that one? Teacher. I saw it. And Craig Foster, who's the man in the film who made the film, and they got, he got an Academy Award for this film. Um, he read the book and loved the book, actually. So he and I have struck up this kind of conversation, which is brilliant. Brilliant. It's super cool when things connect. And I don't usually watch yes. too much documentary. I usually read more. But in that case, I had a friend who wanted to show me some, I think, and then I watched part of it with uh, them. Story. Oh, and then also that point that you brought up the story. When I was reading that, I was thinking about that too. Some things here, if I was writing them, they wouldn't have the compelling forces, but they're not made up compelling forces. They're actually, you know, there was a person. Why is this? I need to figure it out. They have like a force towards something. And you're just relaying that over with the same writing that matches their search in a way. Yes. Yes. Telling their stories. I mean, the book rests on the shoulders of very many interesting um, scientific um, endeavors and, and people, um, and also people who shared their more the human stories, um, the stories when um, someone's senses are slightly different to ours, whether they've got the ability to see more colors than the most of us, or whether they're missing a sense like they're blind or deaf. And, uh, you know, I was in incredibly honored that um, people trusted me to share those stories too. Um, but yes. <laughs> On the senses, one of the main ones that comes to mind that is the most uh, salient to take in is that we see the world. I always think about my sight taking up like 30% of my brain energy all day long. So sometimes if I'm at the gym, I'll be on the treadmill, but I'll close my eyes because I'm like, I'm saving it like 25% of my energy right now. <laughs> And it kind of seems that way because the, the processing takes so much and you describe the cones and the rods out there. Can you describe what we could find out about our vision through, by the way, long live the imagery of sorts that is in the book guiding you in each, without the imagery, it would change the whole book, but it only takes one <laughs> image per, that's funny. Uh, yes, right the peacock mantis shrimp. So those lovely drawings. You know, we had, a, we had a debate about whether to include photographs or drawings, but I think these drawings are so beautifully done. And 
I mean, if you see that peacock mantis shrimp in reality, he is a spectacular creature and very colorful. But I think up. those drawings add a little hint of the unknown, a hint of mystery. They're less literal, which I like. Um, so what can the, the peacock mantis shrimp teach us about the way that we see? Mm -hmm. Is that the question? Yes. I mean, this, this um, so Justin Marshall, who um, now lives over in uh, Australia, he studied these shrimp eyes um, and discovered that they contain very many different types of light sensor, um, 12 of which are dedicated just to color. So they, they can also see um, polarized light and they're the only creature in the world that can see circularly polarized light, which, um, so they've got this private channel of visual communication amongst themselves that no other creature can see, which is, so these creatures are really cool when it comes to vision. But I concentrate on their um, color vision and scientists have this kind of calculus um, in terms of how many color sensors we have. They can kind of compute roughly how many colors we might be able to see. So in the human eye, we have three different types of color sensor. And these three different types of color sensor combine exponentially to essentially enable us to see about, about thereabouts, a million different colors. So when Justin um, discovered that there were 12, that we're trichromates and these creatures are dodecachromates, when he discovered there were 12 different types of color sensor, I mean, what would that mean? <laughs> um, you know, scientists started waving their arms around and saying, you know, um, um, the Oatmeal comic described this creature as uh, seeing a thermonuclear bomb um, of color and beauty. I mean, because if these 12 could add up to, um, uh, I think it was a million, 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 million different colors. That's it. <laughs> a septillion. I mean, so many zeros that I'm befuddled. I can't even begin to imagine. So Justin was like, well, how would a shrimp brain decode all this? So that was the theory. That was the theory. And for a long time, these shrimps have been held up as the archetype, as the iconic animal for seeing color. But a few years ago, when um, one of Justin's uh, postgrads um, started to look at what these creatures could see, this the little twist in the tail of this chapter, they couldn't quite see as many as we would think. And that illustrates, I suppose, the difficulty of understanding another persons and other creatures even more of a leap um, subjective experience we can make assumptions you know we can look at the kind of technology that this animal has the but the biotechnology you know how many senses it has what part of the brain is translating this but ultimately we can't we can't know and the experiment when they actually tested these shrimps for what they could see they 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 see a far more reduced palette than us. And so those 12 color sensors don't combine in the same way that they combine exponentially with us. Um, so it was a kind of cautionary tale this shrimp became in the book. And he's right at the top of the book to express this difficulty of seeing through another's eyes. How funny is it? It's almost like overabundance of incoming data and let's say, not the equipment to process the data in any great capacity such that I can take in all this, but I can just kind of absorb some of it yeah. and figure out a little yeah. bit limitation I'm, of sorts. I'm a bit worried about the vision of me at the moment. The light's getting bad. <laughs> we here on the show request an enlightening 
on Shall I see end. if I can cast a light so you can actually yes. see the colors of the that, shrimp that the that shrimp might be seen. <laughs> While you do that. I've got a table. Look, it's going, the light's going down in London. Let's I want to see. mention this background while she's doing that. Great books, good selection, and Behave by Robert Sapolsky is somewhere in there for my Yes, yes, and very many others, I suspect you've been. A few, yes, yes. <laughs> a brilliant book. Um, I'm a big fan. Lighting is much better, by the way. Sorry? Lighting is much Lighting. better. I like to point Hurrah. out these things in the moment. I'm making this show Hurrah. more. What would in the, the mantis shrimp see? That's the question. It would see this plus more UV somehow, and yeah. then extra color variations that we can't see. Yeah. Like the quattro chromats, the four chromats. The tetrachromats. That were, tetrachromats. So, that, so that then gets into, yes. Yeah, so I then study in that chapter, I study human vision. Um, I talk about people who can't see any color at all. And by that, I don't mean the color blindness we know, the red green color blindness, but can't see any color under the sun. Um, they have um, none of their cones are functioning or um, yeah, none of their cones are functioning, essentially. So they're, a they're achromats. And then I then also look at people, um, this wonderful scientific study conducted by Gabby Jordan, who was studying at the time when she came across the study at Cambridge University. She's now at Newcastle and she's devoted um, the, the last few decades to hunting for a tetrachromat. Um, someone who has four different, I talk, talked to most of us having three different types of cone, but someone who has four different types of cone. And a functioning tetrachromat is someone who uses that information um, to get a view of the world that basically that person would see many more millions of, more millions more colours than me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the wonder of, and also this back to that um, privacy of um, subjective experience, Gabby had to invent um, a scientific study to find this person. So she had to invent a, an experiment that tested someone's um, capability that she didn't have, someone's visual capability that she didn't have. And then when she found this person, because eventually she did, she was leaping for joy, it took decades, but she finally found a functional tetrachromat and um, she realized that she'd never be able to see through this woman's eyes. Um, that, and that woman never realized that she was anything special. You know, for her, that Monday morning and all its million more hues than the rest of us is just her Monday morning. I, I always translate things back to life and personality. So I actually took a note on this that was very key to me and explained something about existence. Um, I took it a bit further. It said... When it was talking about uh, the individual who could see more colors, attempting to express that through her paintings, this part I put stars next to it. Antico's attempts are in vain. She has set herself an unattainable goal. Her paintings represent a world beyond our reach and remind us that we cannot see through another's eyes. This made me think of the fact that same thing with certain other qualities. If a person has certain uh, creative qualities or some skill in, in human world, that is leaps and bounds beyond others, trying to make everybody understand that at the same level looks to be an unattainable goal. It's not yes. there, they don't see it. And I don't wanna be sad like Antico uh, attempting to do that if they're not, this person had to even make a test to be able to examine what it would be like to be yes. that the distance is so far. It's, it's, um, it it um, gets, gets to the core of neurodiversity and, all sorts of current current buzzwords and, and, and important issues. 
Um, there was another thing that I thought was interesting in, in this chapter, again, with regard to judgment about, um, about uh, an, or assumptions about someone's sensory kind of palate. Um, in, in, I, I love Oliver Sacks and his books, and um, I talk about in that chapter, um, the island of the colorblind, where he goes to Pingalap, and he goes there with a, um, a man called Knut Norby, who's no longer with us, nor is Sacks, sadly. Um, and Knut is an achromatope, like many of the people who live on Pingalap. An inordinately large proportion of the people born on Pingalap are, cannot see any color. And, um, and uh, Sachs was fascinated by this condition because occasionally when he got migraines, he'd lose the ability to see color. And previously he'd met a painter who'd had an accident and it had really, he'd lost color with, with his vision. And so this man had had color, knew what he was, had lost and, and, and he, he described everything in terms of sludgy, grim colors. And he really lamented his new vision um, in fact, um, Gabby Jordan told me of one of her patients who said she sees the world in bubblegum pink all the time. I forget whether this lady, it came on her late in life, or whether she was born like this. But if it comes on you late in life, then you might miss what you once saw. Um, so it's, it's complicated. And also, um, um, Sachs noted that Knut Norby was this amazing um, black and white photographer, and he took these beautiful um, compositions of black and white where form and shape and texture really came to the fore, not the colours. And so Sachs said this thing that really stuck with me, that he said he wondered whether colour blinded us to much of what the world has to offer. So, you know, we're often looking, you know, you go to MoMA. I love going to MoMA when I'm in New York. And of course, you know, I love photography. I was there. Looking at the Ansel Adams and the Harry Callahans and all those um, artists who dealt with black and white photography, they had to learn how to see the world like that. Whereas that was Knut's maybe his, his, he, that's how he saw the world. So he was, he, he was perhaps much more cognizant of shape and shadow and texture and saw beauty, you know, maybe color does blind us to some of the, the, the beauty in this world couple of things there. One, I have also gone to MoMA in New York. That's one place I've gone to, which is a place, which we is love. good. I don't get to relate on places too often. <laughs> That's cool. And the second one is, I, I thought of this throughout the whole book various times, whether it was uh, black and white or sound like uh, rain making continuous sound, or yes. it made me think of all the people that um, there's always been a default in existence of like uh, people and then there's, let's say, a minority who they might not like color films, they like darker films, or they like um, rain sound at certain times to put them at peace. And then uh, when you're reading this book, you start to think maybe, you know, somehow a shortage of cones in favor of rods in that person or something that is actually causing them to like, this is what I'm naturally targeted towards. And then this is what you would be targeted towards. It's not like I'm preferring this and you're preferring this it's like we're set up for this all in a way yes possibly it's probably a sliding scale i'm sure taste is also important but maybe but but maybe um yes as you say there are other setups that kind of predispose us to liking certain things it's a really interesting question isn't it 
Yeah. Also made me think of uh, black and white films. Maybe they were the strongest push of keeping them going, even after they were after they were done. Were people that color maybe pushes on them, and they like that, and they would they would say, "I like older films." What they really were thinking was, "I like films that don't uh, impinge on my eyes" or something. Yes, but this I had a real issue. Um, so when I started making documentaries, um, wildlife films, we were using camera um, film. We were using 16 mil and 35 mil camera film, and we'd operate those old machines, the Steenbecks. This is dating me somewhat. Um, but then video came in and then high definition video came in. And when I look at the difference between a beautifully shot 35 mil film versus a beautifully shot high definition film, I do. My eye does rebel. I do like something in the way that um, those older uh, formats um, somehow make reality look a little less real. And therefore, that translation for me is appealing, I guess. Um, hyper-reality maybe is just too every day. Um, and anyway, it's, yeah. I saw a thing on that like a week ago where people were saying that something that is too high quality and too many uh, hertz per second, it makes them like unnerved. Whereas watching film at 30 frames per second or something like that, that's what looks like a show or something to watch. The other one is like disturbing. It's not good for viewing for some reason. Yeah. Maybe the high bandwidth. It's funny because you, you would think you're getting closer to reality, but some people are like, nope, that's, no. we have that. <laughs> I come here for this, this form of it. <laughs> that's kind of funny. Now, one sense, I know somebody that their online name is timing is everything. Time is the key. We have 24 hours a day. We operate on an internal clock of sorts. This was a second uh, high priority sense I looked into. Um, I like learning about and is there an organism that tells us a little bit about time through its own understanding of time in its smaller form that we can yes. take from? So I chose the trash line orb weaver, um, which is this wonderful spider, um, quite, quite ghoulish. It, um, after it sucked its flies dry, um, it, uh, it, it basically hides itself. There it is, hidden amongst all the kind of um, thoraxes, the empty thoraxes and decapitated bodies and whatnot. So it builds this little graveyard that then it can hunker down and hide in. So it's camouflage. And every time it builds a new web, it carts its trash line with it. Um, so it's this rather wonderful spider. Um, and scientists at East uh, um, Tennessee State University um, we're looking at the spider and discovered that it, it's got very unusual uh, circadian rhythms and circadian bo body clocks. And it started then looking at the wider evolutionary family tree and discovered really long clocks and really short clocks. We, we clock around 24 um, hours, which is, you know, to tie into the night and day that we've, we, we evolved on this planet. Um, and that's been roughly how long night and day um, turns out, you know, 12 to 12. Um, but this spider is doing something strange and complicated and, and the scientists haven't quite got to the bottom of it. I mean, in truth, I could have chosen any animal to discuss um, this sense because all creatures and plants have these body clocks and are able to um, basically sense daylight that re recalibrates the clock and ensures even these spiders are clocking when they're in... Um, when they're in uh, outside 
um, you know, waking to a dawn and going to sleep at dusk, then they do clock and do, do clock to the 24 hour rhythm. But this sense of time was really fascinating. And I, I had been working on the Spookfish chapter and Ron Douglas, who discovered the Spookfish said, you've got to include this other fo uh, oh. photo sensor, light sensor in the eye. I went, what light sensor? We only have cones and rods. And hardly anyone knows about the fact that there is this other light sensor and it doesn't lead to conscious perception. But this light sensor discovered by Russell Foster, which, by the way, when he first proposed this notion, um, ophthalmologists kind of, you know, shouted him out the room. They were absolutely outraged. You get out of here. <laughs> but they had studied the eye and no one else had discovered that there was another photoreceptor. And, you know, the eye is, was one of the kind of best understood organs of our body. So they were outraged that here he was proposing, guys, you've missed, you've missed something here. Um, but his, his science was um, rigorous and um, methodically he kind of detailed every step along the way to prove that, that we do have this other sensor in our eye and it detects um, the passing of the day and night. And it, it, um, it basically cues our master clock in our brain to the passing of day and night. And that in turn, like a conductor kind of leading its orchestra, basically keeps every single body clock in our, in our, in our body timed to this night and day passing. And every cell in our body has its own body clock. So, so it's a big orchestra. <laughs> it's great. It's like a cascade starter and then everything else ripples from that. Everything else ripples from that. And then, of course, um, I, I met uh, Mark Threadgold, who'd worked um, uh, for the British Army and, uh, and had an accident and he'd lost his sight. And he, he, Russell, talks of Mark as being time blind. Um, and this is this thing about people who have, who have black blindness, who've completely lost their sight. They may well have lost this sense of circadian time. And it's really important, um, even if they can't consciously sense light, if their optic um, nerve is still working, um, they, they need, Russell says, it's really imperative that people are encouraged, blind people are encouraged to go out into the open and see and be exposed to daylight so that at least their master clock is working. With Mark, it couldn't work because his optic nerve was, was cut. So there was no information getting through at all. So he's had to essentially rely on clocks, exterior clocks to his body to remind himself to keep, to keep, to keep time. Um, but before he knew that, he found himself um, losing his grip on the passing of day and night. So he'd wake up in the middle of the night thinking it was the morning. He'd be outside doing his lawns with the neighbours going, what do you think you're doing? What time do you call this? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> come back inside. <laughs> so, but Mark's experience was a really important part of um, Russell's um, science to, um, you know, to, to understand how this, how this uh, sensor in our eye keeps us on time with the passing of day and night. I always take themes from everything. One thing that make, that makes me think about is when something about you is off, let's say, it's still good to do the thing that you regularly do, whether it's um, maybe something happened with your communication, but you should still go out and try to talk to strangers because uh, you'll keep that going. Or your workouts, maybe you'll have a, a calf that you pulled or something. 
but you should still go and work out the other parts because it's like the eye part. Uh, you'll take care of the wrist. If you now cut off the whole thing, you are losing your ability in total. Even if that thing heals or you figure out a way around it, everything else has diminished in the meantime. And you also didn't have triggers to get back to that. Whereas action towards something is the best trigger to get back to that thing. In a way. Yep. That makes sense. Yep. Now, actually, as of the senses, was there specific senses that were the ones you first said these must be included? Or how did you approach which senses you would cover? Yes, because I mean, some some scientists talk of there being, you know, upwards of 22 different senses or as many as 33. So, yes, I had to choose, um, which seems like a slightly um, odd position to be in. But um, yes, I mean, hearing was interesting. For example, I didn't um, I talked with my great gray owl. I talked mainly of volume and the ability of ears being sensitive to decibels, to volume. But there was a whole part of the hearing story that I didn't concentrate on, which was um, pitch and, um, and frequency. And, um, you know, I, I, I wondered about um, looking into infrasound. I've just, I've just been over in Kenya, actually. And um, we had this in incredible night um, where we were sitting around a fire on a dry riverbed um, at the end of a long day. And um, someone heard a branch crack and they shone their torch up and they saw a herd of elephants within kind of five meters of us, absolutely silent. And we, it was a magical experience. We watched these creatures, they were so quiet, but I knew from the research that I'd done and, 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 and loving elephants, I've known about this. Um, there was a wonderful book called Silent Thunder actually written by Katie Payne, who was a scientist who made this discovery about elephants. She discovered that elephants communicate with one another using infrasounds. So using these deep grumbles that occur beneath our hearing. And she likened it, she was in the choir when she was young and when the organist used to play, um, when he hit those notes that were too low for our ear, but you could almost feel it in your body, um, because the vibe, you know, sound is simply vibrations of molecules. Um, so I was intrigued by that answer, uh, that idea, whether we could sense this infrasound, not with our ears, but in other ways. But ultimately, I, I had a very strict, the, the um, thesis that I came up with um, was that I had to find an animal that could talk about a particular sense with us. So that pairing became really important. And so it didn't quite work. So there were lots of senses that I would have liked to have used that animals have, but also senses that we have um, interoception, which is the ability for us to sense what's going on inside our bodies. You know, the feeling of our heartbeat or knowing what um, um, our unconscious knowledge our body knows about blood pressure or whether we're hungry or anyway. So there were, there were certain senses that I didn't include, but um, there was so much to include. I had to draw the line. Like that. Makes me think of two things. One is uh, the travel, but I'll get back to that. The other one is the, is it, does it take a certain kind of individual to go towards understanding that is like with the hearing, if there's no sound, suddenly you start maybe hearing your uh, blood flowing or your heart pumping way louder than in normal instances, because we're always hearing something I believe was mentioned, which is kind of cool as sound being the connector of all of us. Uh, is it, maybe do you, like going towards reality 
and because now i'm i don't even think of this as an eye now i think of it as like cone surrounded by rods and i have the two systems <laughs> at play do you like going towards that or has it been something you're fascinated with and just kind of go towards it uh by interest but then when you get there you're like i know too much what are your thoughts on that i never know too much i'm 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 curious I mean, I think throughout all throughout the whole my whole career, whether I was making wildlife films or science documentaries or now writing um, um, science books or, or, you know, I even hesitate to say it's a science book because I'd say in a way I'd like it to reach an audience that's wider than those who normally read science books, because um, I'd say it's about being curious about what it means to be human, being curious about, you know, how we sense the world, being curious about um, how we fit into the grander scheme of life. You know, I look to the, I look to animals and I see our evolutionary family tree. We're just another animal. Um, so, so yes, so my, my, my writing and my making of documentaries has always been led by curiosity. I was that annoying kid who always went, why? <laughs> or uh, translated by Armin out here. Uh, she was the, I got blurry for a second video, but she was the individual who wanted to understand things versus passing them by in the brief moment, which would maybe make the group slightly, I don't know, uncomfortable or slightly delayed. But once you figure out something, then two years later, eight years later, you still know it. Whereas the person who didn't ask why, still kind of curious, but I guess I won't bring it up now because I didn't bring it up two years ago because I didn't bring it up four years ago. I'll be forever un unknowing, I guess. And I think, I think, you know, I was also that kid who kind of prodded around in rock pools and, um, and that, um, and, and, and that, and that curiosity kind of inf has informed me um, somehow, but, um, you know, it's, um, there's that lovely JBS Haldane quote that God has an inordinate fondness for beetles, um, which is, you know, they're just a really successful evolutionary experiment. But, you know, I suppose most people might see a beetle and walk on by, but that I am interested in things like that. I am drawn to um, turning over rocks and looking at what's underneath, um, prodding in a rock pool. Um, I suppose in a way there's a kind of still a, a childlike curiosity I have about trying to understand um, more about where we live for this brief moment of time. And... Um, and that there's much wonder to be had in these, these things. I, I, talk about, I talk about the skin, for example, in the book. I was really surprised by our skin and the fact that it was, it was um, described to me as science's last great sensory frontier because scientists are still uncovering sensors at work uh, th that are in our skin. Um, one was only uncovered a couple of decades ago, but it's only being understood now as to what it does. So. Scientists have done these experiments with machines so that we know it's not the person, the effect of the person touching another person, but machines have um, pressed with a very light um, force and they move, and if it's at the same temperature as skin and it moves at three to five uh, centimeters per second. So what am I doing? This sensor responds to a stroke and it doesn't respond to any other um, touch. So it responds to a stroke. So I, I began to realize that back to being interested in things that are under our nose, we often look to the heavens and cast our eyes up to the heavens and are awed by this place we can't get to. <laughs> but, you know, one frontier is the surface of our, of our body, our skin. 
And so I, I like to find, there is wonder for me in things that surround us every day. And that's what the book was about, trying to understand our senses. Is it's, it's, it's realizing the kind of miracle of the everyday, um, the wonder of the everyday, um, everything that we normally kind of bypass and forget about. Bypass and forget about a lot. One thing I like, you mentioned the brief moment of time. I always mention that, how we have such a brief moment of time, but recognizing it is the key for a, a select few that are like, wait a minute, I get to move my hand right now, whereas for most of history and after history, that's not, not in our applicable realm. <laughs> One thing you mentioned there was earlier on, you were talking about you went to Kenya. I wanted to check where are some places that zoology or presentation in, in film has taken you that you um, see as... Uh, some key places you went to. Yes. Um, mm. I've, I've been to some amazing places. I mean, near you actually, um, and I love this, is the Sonora Desert. Oh. Um, maybe you don't think that's exciting, but I remember- No, no, I didn't think that. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I made a film uh, for National Geographic on the Sonora Desert and that place, I mean, it seems so otherworldly. That does seem like kind of stepping foot on, onto Mars. I think it was the first environment I went to where there weren't proper trees. You've just got these extraordinary cipher-like saguaro cactuses. Um, that was a rather wonderful place. Um, I filmed in some interesting places in Africa as well, which is probably a bit more obvious. I, I, I filmed in, um, this was a fun story that we filmed over in Australia. We were making a, um, a documentary for the natural world on how plants disperse their seeds. And I ended up in the Australian outback in the middle of nowhere, filming emus eating this really slightly ordinary looking bush called the quinine bush. And you'd think that the emu eating this bright colored fruit would be the first, would be the only part of this seed plant seed dispersal. But then we realized that when the seed popped out the other end of the emu, we filmed these emu scats drying and the seed pods would dry with the emu poo, the emu scat. And then when they got to a certain level of dryness, they'd explode and send inside their little seeds flung out even further from the, the, mother, the parent plant. Um, and then it didn't stop there. Each seed had this tiny little proteinaceous body attached to it called an eliosome, which ants found irresistible. And so ants would come up and take this little seed and cart it down into their, um, uh, to their middens, their underground middens, where they would eat the little eliosome. Yum, yum, that was very nice, thank you. And dump the plant underground in the perfect place waiting germination. <laughs> So that was an that was a that was an extraordinary story from the outback of Australia. That is quite cool. It's interesting when you, like a a, a tree will have a, a seed that will, will lightly float forever. It'll float for like a mile down there and then go, or it'll use an animal to move it. Or this one's real specific down into the dirt. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. It for you. The idea being that if you can get your children away from you, you're kind of, you know, opening up other possibilities, other avenues, and each of your children will arrive in a different place. And hopefully with luck, some of those places will be conducive to germination and some of them will be conducive to um, a fruitful life. <laughs> that made me think of one time I read about how there was a certain uh, percentage of humans that had uh, traits that make them more risk-taking and more likely to go off into far-off destinations 
And then yeah. when they examined those areas, there was a higher percentage of those traits. And that was beneficial, obviously, because new frontiers and we can spread across the planet. Yeah, I guess it depends on the on the era you find yourselves in, whether bravery is required or, um, yeah, or being more of a homemaker. Balance between the two of sorts. Yeah. It's an interesting one. Now, the one last sense I would, there's obviously many senses, but, um, well, I will I have to add in the hearing one was very cool because if you, did you check, was it mentioned this, that if you make noise, uh, let's say the owl was doing its thing, but now we were playing a lot of loud music, would that mess up the whole system of being able to super detect things? So, so sorry, the owl, if we were playing loud, I, I talked about, well, I talked about um, what I found was interesting was the fact that the bird's feathers mm -hmm. absorb vibration, uh, uh, turbulence. And so they really have perfected the art of silent flight. So when they swoop in to their quarry, the qu they, they're not heard. Um, and also, not simply are they not heard by the quarry, but they're able to hear that mouse still squeaking. So if you put a big noise system up, that might kind of camouflage the mouse's squeak. I suppose it depends on the um, frequency back to pitch. Um, they're re they've, they're, they're uh, fovea, they've got an, uh, an audible fovea. So they're really uh, sensitive to high, the high pitched um, frequencies of their prey. Um, so maybe they could hear those high pitches through, you know, infrasonic rumble that they'd hear that as noise. But anyway, it's Fair point. those experiments haven't been done. I'm just speculating right. here. I don't think. <laughs> Makes sense. I was thinking about that because then it would kind of uh, obviously that's not common in the wild, but thinking that would might negate the now you couldn't hear the mouse or where it would be well yes so may so maybe the mouse the mouse's um evolutionary tactic should be to invent a mouse disco have sounds going <laughs> everywhere needs to set up little um <laughs> pretend squeaks and really confuse that owl <laughs> i need a trademark I'll copyright this so <laughs> the mice will be after me <laughs> yeah two percent to armin for that idea now the last sense i would want to cover of the many is taste because uh, maybe think I, I just started thinking of all the chefs uh how they are more attuned i've read about that and uh than we are or than the average person we have our uh, taste buds what can be told to us about taste by the goliath catfish, catfish. why a fish why a fish why a fish a lot I of them i noticed a few are a fish can you hear this whining? You're not hearing. My dog is trying to get in. Is it? A, you, is you're okay, sound wise? <laughs> Your dog wants to know. <laughs> My dog, dog wants to know the answer to this question. Animals like animals. That's the way it works. So the cat. Well, there is. Yes. Yeah, so the catfish I chose as a as um for the taste story because it is the iconic animal for taste. Which you're like, well, what's going on here? They don't have a tongue, not as we know it. So what's going on? And scientists um have discovered essentially. I mean, the, the work was done a while ago. There he is, the Goliath. Uh, the, the work's been done on different species of catfish, but I chose the Goliath because it's enormous. And um, so, sorry, just to backtrack. Um, so the catfish flanks and their little barbels, their little whiskers are covered in taste buds, very similar to those found on our tongue. And we can trace back, we inherited our taste-like system from our fish-like ancestors, if you recall. The fish, 
um, it deep in evolutionary and our evolutionary past. Um, an adventurous fish-like tetrapod was the first creature to clamber up onto the earth. And from these creatures came all the creatures that then populated, well, ultimately us. Um, so yes, so taste and, and the catfish, the, and the catfish has, so the catfish tracks its prey by uh, tasting it essentially. And it's the, the wonderful term, did I say, that scientists refer to these fish as swimming tongues. So they're like huge tongues. It, it, their body is like a huge tongue. And when it comes to the Goliath, it's this immense tongue, um, a couple of meters long, um, swimming through these soupy uh, black waters of the Amazon, where all the leaf litter has kind of, the, the trees that overhang these rivers have dropped their leaves. And so very little light gets through and it's really dense with all the kind of pigmentation within the leaves. So eyesight's not much use. And so these creatures taste their world. They don't see their world, they taste their world. Um, and so, so yes, I use that creature to understand our tongue a little bit more um, and to get into the story of non-tasters and super tasters and the wonderful research done by Linda Bartoshock um, to discover people who don't have many taste buds on their tongue and those who have many more than the rest of us. And then there are also super, super tasters. Uh, but you mentioned chefs. And um, one thing to say is that the super tasters, you might think a chef is a super taster, but apparently super tasters don't particularly like food. So chefs might not be super tasters. <laughs> and the other thing to say is that what we think of in terms of flavor, we think of as taste, but actually the majority of flavor is smell. So when we chew that piece of chocolate in our mouth, little molecules, you, you, you will taste its sweetness, but we've only got um, taste sensors that can then register sweetness, sourness, saltiness, bitterness, and some people say umami, which is like a meaty, meatiness. So that's the those are the only things we taste and all the rest of that kind of um, chocolate is essentially it's aroma. So the chocolate little molecules waft up the back of my throat to my nose. They are registered by senses in my nose, but then they are um, interpreted by the brain. The brain essentially hoodwinks us into thinking that they're tasted on the tongue. So flavor, which is, is what I would discuss more than taste when it comes to creating that perfect gastronomic feast, that's the majority, the majority of flavor is taste. And I, I don't know if you've had COVID, um, but I dodged had, it. Yeah, you dodged it. You're very lucky. I had COVID um, and I had anosmia. My, my ability to smell just disappeared and consequently food tasted appalling. So my tongue sensors, my taste buds were still working, but my smell wasn't. And that made me realize as I was writing this book, how much of flavor is taste. But you get the same effect if you have a really bad head cold. Yeah, you've got that. that same thing. Things don't taste good. It just, just messes it up. Smell them. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you're eating, like this chicken soup is not as good as it would have been a week ago. Yeah. <laughs> It was miserable. My coffee was awful. It just tasted a bitter kind of, and my chocolate, which those two things I love, they're real treats. Both were reduced to sludgy nonsense. 
I'm a big fan of hot chocolates. That's my mm. great thing of, I get a lot of them. They're great. Long live hot chocolates. If they stop making them, it's not going to be good for the economy. The economy. <laughs> That's classic. Yeah. I leaving the other senses for those who are curious to find out about, because there's many and many more and some elements that weren't even uh, added in as mentioned. I would like to say, what is a message or a takeaway you would want people to pull from the book about their own senses? How do you want the individual that's reading the book to feel afterwards or learn? Um, oh, many things, but mainly I think um, I use, I, I quote Oliver Sacks at the very beginning of the book, this um, in his last op-ed that he talks about the gratitude he, fe fe um, he feels um, when he's faced with the fact that he's going to die, the gratitude he, he feels having been a sentient creature and what an enormous privilege and an enormous adventure it's been, life on earth, life as a sentient creature. And I think that's what I'd like people to grasp, but that there is wonder in the simplicity, in the mundane morning slog to the office, whatever it is, in that first cup of coffee. I, I'd like people to dissect and appreciate themselves and 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 um, and um, appreciate the marvels that we are. Essentially, that's that would be a great take-home message. Add on to that. In the front, there is a dedication. How did your mom pass on a sense of wonder and/or curiosity to you? Was it passed on directly? Our parents have a big influence on us. How did that come about? So you noticed. You noticed. I dedicated the book to her. <laughs> Mum was a biology teacher, a brilliant biology teacher. Um, and I think that sense of curiosity about how the world works really comes from her. Um, so, I, yeah, that's that's why I dedicated the book to her. Would she also call herself curious or would she have found yes. herself to be curious? Yeah. Yes. And she'd love. Yeah, she'd love. She'd be very curious to know what we're talking about right, right now. That's <laughs> Everybody. I'll have to share this with her. She'll be thrilled and delighted. That you picked up on that that people want to know that people want to know Jackie. but she is absolutely curious yeah she taught me she taught me to ask that question why what is her name by the way <laughs> maria maria long live curiosity you've passed it on we're speaking about it and you had it beforehand you're part of the link of the um, temporal past to the current moment to the next step that's wonderful Jackie, I would like to thank you for having been on this episode, giving us a sense about senses. Great phrase. I'm glad to use on this one and <laughs> detailing a bit about sentient for us so that we can learn more and prosper. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. It's been fun on this end too. And we are out.